how to start? Well, you know, it's just writing. I mean, here's something important to remember about dialogue. Every word matters. No, it doesn't. They're modern. I want to go to this place that I think it needs to go to. The only thing that counts is what you see on the screen. I will write like four or five, six hours a day. And it will be a voice made of ink and rage. Okay, I'm, re I'm really glad you asked me that question. Welcome to episode 409, where I sat down with Justin Halpern and Patrick Shoemaker to discuss their two shows, Harley Quinn and Abbott Elementary. In this interview, we talk about how they got their start by a Twitter feed called Shit My Dad Says, writing the Harley Quinn Valentine's Day episode, balancing multiple shows at the same time, writing different styles of comedy, and what it means to advance as a showrunner. You can also find this interview on the Creative Screenwriting website. And if you haven't already downloaded your copy of my book, Ink by the Barrel, you can steal my first book, Ink by the Barrel, Secrets from Prolific Writers, right now for free. That's the digital download and audiobook over at brockswinson.com. All right, here's the show. But we met when we were in, we were interns together at a band of Heart Productions, which was Quentin Tarantino's production company. But we worked at commercials and music videos, um, and we never saw Quentin, ever. <laughs> ever. Um and uh i think i always had wanted to be a writer um and uh and i think that you know that had always been a dream of mine pat you wanted to be a, a commercial director yeah and music videos um and uh yeah i just i mean i i always enjoyed writing um but i think i i was sort of more passionate about uh i don't know communicating like solely through visuals i guess so um or 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 i guess words being kind of like secondary um that's probably being too uh, reductive but <laughs> but i think that's one of the reasons that we we make a good pairing is that like uh, i i uh, oftentimes will kind of come at it things for like ideas from like a visual place um and uh just kind of like like an aesthetic place um, and, and Justin comes at it from like maybe more of a character place or just a psychological place. And, um, yeah, so I think it's, it's, it, it works for us because like, you know, over, over time and, and we, we've said this in interviews before, so I'm sorry if this is redundant at all, but like, I, like we kind of started out always feeling like we, we both had to do kind of the exact same job. Like we wrote stuff together, we directed stuff together, just kind of on the side before it became like a, an actual career. And, uh, you know, while, while we still had day jobs, but then like, even when we started, you know, we got our own show on the air, which was like the way that we had broken into television, which was kind of a baptism by fire. And we can talk about that if you want to, but, but just to, to kind of gloss over that, we were still kind of feeling like we needed to sort of be this like two headed entity kind of but performing the same tasks and over time i think we've sort of created a system where you know we have enough trust with each other that uh we can kind of divide and conquer and so now justin spends you know 99 percent of his time in the writer's room focusing just on you know story breaking and whatnot and i do that stuff in pre-production but once we go into production i kind of float between the writer's room and, and i'm on set quite a bit um, helping, you know, prep or just, you know, during the production, kind of helping oversee that with Randall Einhorn, who's our 
uh, I'm talking about Abbott specifically right now, Abbott Elementary, but um, yeah, it's, it's worked out well for our, our livelihood, I think, and just our being able to have like lives outside of uh, producing and writing television. But I also it a, think it took a while to get there. I also think um, uh, that I wanted to do writing because it was the only thing I could finish. Like I remember being a kid and my dad being like, you're not good at anything. Like you can't, because you can't finish anything. You give up, you quit, you move on to something else, you get bored. And I sat down to write a script. It was a Seinfeld spec and I was 16 and I finished it. <laughs> and I was in such disbelief that I had finished that script because I'd never finished a fucking thing in my entire life. And that um, became the puffy shirt episode. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You didn't know that at 16, I was on set for Seinfeld. Um, no. Uh, and I think that that was a big thing for me. It's just like, wow, I actually like doing this and can finish it. Yeah. I think also on the, the writing front for me, I, I, I grew up just enamored with, saturday night live that was like the ritual the weekly ritual i had with my mom I mean, we watched a lot of television together but like saturday nights were kind of like sacred i had all this episodes like taped on vhs off the tv and kept them they still exist in my mom's basement in st louis um and that was just a really formative kind of important part of my upbringing so i think a lot of my writing that i did like when i was justin's age uh at the time that he wrote his seinfeld spec uh uh i was doing a lot of like kind of sketchy stuff um like sketch based comedy stuff um for school or whatever so yeah and then we just then we bonded over um we we, we <laughs> the summer that we met we we went to go see pootie tang i don't know if you remember that movie it was the yeah. summer of 2001 and he and i were like rolling on the floor laughing and uh and then I think that was like when we realized that maybe there's some some connection here, some overlap in our sensibility. <laughs> like to go, go on record as saying, I'm sure that movie does not age well. So <laughs> <laughs> I need to watch it again. I haven't seen it since 2001. <laughs> you had similar tastes in movies and TV. I would imagine it's kind of where you're going with that. Um, tell me about getting the first show on and then early on, what were the logistics of your process? How did you literally, how did you write together? Uh, so the first show we got on was I, I had started a Twitter feed on Twitter called shit. My dad says, and, and I didn't start it really for any other reason to just kind of like keep a log of these crazy things. My dad was saying while I was living with him and it blew up and Pat and I were like suddenly getting incoming calls, which is what you want, but never get in Hollywood. And uh, everybody wanted to try to do it. And we had said to each other, um, the only thing we want to make sure of is it doesn't just end up being like a multicam sitcom on CBS. And that is exactly what it ended up becoming. Um, and, but, you know. But we were willing it, participants at a certain, at a certain point, I think, like, even going into like meetings with studios where we're like, this, this should probably be like a single cam, like period piece on HBO and walking out of those meetings. We were like, no, this should be a, a multi-cam on, on CBS. Yeah, We didn't know Mother. anything. Like it wasn't a situation where it's like, Oh man, if only we'd gotten our way, it would have been a good show. No, it would have yeah. been a bad one. It would have been a bad one. No matter what, we didn't know what the fuck we were doing. 
Um, I would say our process of writing <clears throat> is, at the time, it's sort of, it's evolved, but it, at first it was, we were there in a room together over each other's shoulders, taking turns on the keyboard, just like talking out every piece of dialogue. And to some extent we still do write things like that. Mm -hmm. uh, but now I think we're so familiar with each other. We've been writing partners for 20 years. We're so familiar with each other's writing and we're so familiar with what the other one wants that a lot of times now we just can break off scenes and he'll take a crack at one scene and I'll take a crack at another scene and then we'll bring them together and we'll go through them together. Um, yeah. Usually. I, mean, I was just going to say that that's like how we did the Harley Quinn Valentine's day special, which we wrote with, Dean Laurie as well. Um, we literally just like, we, we kind of like outlined that separately, like Frankenstein, the, the outline scenes. And then we, we all three of us basically took, it was a six act story. We each took two acts, Frankenstein, those together. And like really in that situation, it was the three of us, but like, we're so, we were so simpatico that like when we Frankenstein it together, we fully expected it to be just <laughs> a disaster, but we were like, Oh, huh. This actually kind of connects up. So we've, we've become kind of a hive mind. And I think the one thing we always do though, is when we're, when we're starting something new, we're starting a new show, a new, a, we're writing a pilot or a movie from scratch. We write this, we write the start of it together because we need to like both be on the same page with how these characters talk and um, sort of like where the, how, how they interact with one another and all that stuff, we need to see each other kind of like realize it in real time. Um, and then once we have a really good sense of it, then we can break off. But but we start together, writing together uh, anything new. Years ago, I interviewed the guys who write the Hangover movies. They're writing partners as well. And one thing they told me was, if the idea is too funny, if the hook is too funny, it's probably a sketch and not a movie. Did you, is is that true? Would you see that with like shit my dad says versus like stuff you did later? Well, I think, I think there's a lot of truth to what they're saying uh, about that. I think it, but more so I feel like it depends on the characters. Like if I think, I think the, the subtext of what they're saying is that if it's all sort of high concept and plot and it's not born from your characters, then you might not have enough to sustain, you know, two hours of a movie or a uh, hundred episodes of a television show, because all that shit is based off of character work, right? Mm -hmm. If the characters aren't complex, interesting, they're not going on a journey. They're not driving the, the story forward. Character decisions aren't driving the story forward. Then yeah, yeah. it does just become a sketch. It makes me think of that that scene in uh, Idiocracy where Luke Wilson is chastising like the the audience, like basically saying like there, there, there's this really popular film series that's just a close up of an ass farting, <laughs> and he's chastising them because he's like, I want to know whose ass that is and why it's farting, <laughs> and I do think like I mean we look at like like uh, you know a film a huge breakout film now Oscar winner for best picture this year everything everywhere all at once. Or the other film that the Daniels did, um, Swiss Army Man, where it's like you look at the, like the poster, maybe more so for Swiss Army Man, maybe, but than everything everywhere. But like it seems like it's just this gonzo kind of like cool idea or funny idea. But then those guys find a way of injecting some real, you know, grounded emotion into it. And I think like, you know, I, I, I think 
that's something that we that we try and do now, especially uh, as we get older. We're a little less um, interested in like titillation for titillation's sake. Like, don't get me wrong, like we love a fart joke, but like, um, you know, we we want to know whose ass that is when it's farting. I guess. <laughs> Have you guys always kind of like been multitasking on multiple projects at once? Like, how are you balancing between Abbott and Harley Quinn right now? What does a year look like for you guys? Yeah, I mean, we all we we're always multitasking in terms of like the, the this business is a business of failure. There's just most things that you come up with most ideas, most pilots, most scripts you write, they're just never going to see the light of day. It's just never going to happen. And so really the only way to kind of have something become real is at some point it becomes kind of a numbers game, right? If I'm developing five projects, then the chances of one of them becoming something real is much greater than if I have all my eggs in one basket. (laughs) And then sometimes what you have, what you have to, make sure not to do is to just like fucking shotgun shit out there and just hope something sticks. I mean, they need to be projects you love and that you're interested and you want to see. There was a period of time in our career where we were writing what the studio wanted and it was not shit that we were ever going to watch. And we started to get really kind of, at least I did. I started to get really depressed. Like I got, I went into a dark place because I was like, I fucking hate everything we're working on. It all sucks. I don't want to watch any of it. And I think he and I just decided, we made a decision somewhere, sometime in 27, 2016, I think, let's only make things we would watch. And when we did that, it completely turned our careers around. <clears throat> and, yeah. you know, some of that is fortuitous and that story is possibly a bit apocryphal, but I think there is a lot of like truth to that being a catalyst for, for us turning our careers around. Yeah. I mean, we were always good. I think part of it is a function of maturity too, and just have experience. And like, you know, we were always, I, I would say prior to like three or four years ago, even we were always good for like a moment of just like complete self doubt on a pilot project where, you know, like total imposter syndrome where, you know, it's like you're banging your head against the wall late at night, trying to, you know, make this story work or make this concept work. And then we get to the point where we're both just like, fuck it, this doesn't, like, none of this works, right? And then you just sort of walk away from it for a second and then you come back and, and you do it and it gets done, whether it works or not. And then, uh, you know, you rinse and repeat, you know, with the next project. And, and I think now, you know, w- we sense those moments coming, but there's always a, a way of, of, of making it better. And, I, and so we're, we're able to kind of, uh, you know, keep, keep stoic <laughs> through those moments a little bit more. And I think the other important thing to, you know, juggling all these projects is having an amazing uh, support system in place of other people who are, you know, extremely talented, who we trust, who we have a shorthand with. Like, for instance, you know, Abbott season two uh, coincided with um, Harley Quinn. Well, season one and two really coincide of Abbott coincided with season four of Harley Quinn and its writing process and then its production process. And so we were able to promote a writer from within a writer producer Sarah Peters to be the day-to-day showrunner on season four of Harley. She had written some of the best episodes of seasons two and three of, of Harley. We had a shorthand. We also, you know, had spoken with her in depth prior to her taking the reins of the show saying, you know, this is kind of what we're interested in, but also we were, 
very interested in what she had to say with the show. And, and so not only is it having this wonderful support system, but it's also uh, being able to relinquish control of that and be okay with it. Right. Like take your ego out of it a little bit and, and just trust that there are some geniuses out there that are going to make us look better. Yeah. I, I I was talking to Phil Lord once um, and Phil was like, when you're working with other people and you have a project and you have to hand it to somebody else, like all you want in that person you're handing it to is someone who's like kind, collaborative. And who, if you say, Hey, is there a way we can make this better that they'll go out and they'll do that, you know? And that, I think that when you get in, you get in trouble, if you start to think you're like some singular genius who like, you're the only person who could ever make this any good, which is total bullshit. You know, everybody brings their own thing to a uh, a project. <clears throat> and I think that that's the best part is when you find somebody who is like Sarah Peters, who is really super talented, you're like, oh, she's going to bring something to this project that I never could. Uh, and I'm excited to see what that is. And so that's kind of how we always try to operate with other shows. It's like finding writers where we're like, I want to see their version of this. Yeah, they really should like... <laughs> The, the WGA in, in conjunction with with the studios should really just require showrunners to take management classes too, because at a, you know, at the point that we are at currently in our careers, like we have become every bit as much managers as we are writers, right? We have so many writers that are around us um, who are looking for, for guidance and, or, you know, collaborators, but also, yeah, guides. And so, that's you know that's that's been a part of the learning curve as well um yeah two of like, us, so again it helps <laughs> yeah. yeah when writing at a certain point it's, it's weird if you get successful enough in writing it's like you you become a writer and the manager of a tj max and it's like <laughs> though that suddenly you're like wait i was just a writer for a really long time and they're like yeah but also now you have to oversee menswear and womenswear and it's like wait that's a completely different skill set and but that is, there's so much just like basic management shit that you have to do when you start producing and running multiple things. Is the market more free? So I used to think of comedy writers like if I think of Judd Apatow movies, I think of them all as the same type of comedy. But Abbott <laughs> and Harley Quinn are very different. Abbott's kind of dry and sweet and that type of thing coming off maybe the back of the office and Parks and Rec. Harley Quinn is something totally different. Is it is the market more open to you guys writing way different styles like that, or how did that kind of come to be? Um, I think, go ahead, Pat. Oh, go, I was just going to say I do think that it's a little bit of serendipity in the way that it came to be. I think I, probably now I would venture a guess that the market is open to us doing some some very sort of um, eclectic things, right? Because we started Harley came first, and and uh, you know I was big comic book nerd justin was like familiar enough we had also run uh uh uh, the show powerless on nbc which was like took place in the dc universe um and then harley landed in our laps warner brothers came to us uh, susan rovner specifically who was running development at the time and was like do you you guys want to do this kind of r-rated serialized harley quinn animated show we're like yes like we i mean we all we love animation both of us love the simpsons justin probably a little bit more (laughs) because he can recite like everything um but uh 
you know, we were like, yeah, this is an amazing opportunity. We're not going to pass it up. And we did it. And, and it was like, probably, I think it's fair to say it was like the best thing that we had worked on, best experience, the most us of like anything that we had ever worked on before. And then Quinta came to us. Um, we had, we had cast her in a pilot um, that we were doing for CW. That was sort of a genre, like hour long, like light comedy, kind of sci-fi thing. And uh, we had become friends and that pilot didn't move forward, but we, you know, maintained a relationship. And then she came to us a few years back wanting to maybe do Abbott uh, then called Herity elementary, which is the name of her elementary school in Philly as an animated show, but kind of still like docu style, but like animated. And she, cause she was like, you guys are the Harley guys. Mm-hmm. And we we're like, cool. And then one thing led to another, it, it, like our schedules didn't align. She got some other projects that she was working on. And then all of a sudden, like, you know, like literally like a, like a year later or something, I run into her on the lot at Warner Brothers and she doesn't drive. And I was like, you need to ride home. I'm going that way. And Justin and I have been talking about what became Abbott as a live action broadcast opportunity. We thought this could be a pretty cool show. And I mentioned it to Quentin. She was like, I was thinking the exact same thing. <laughs> and then like two weeks later, we're pitching it to the studios and like, there you have it. And, and, uh, you know that like so that's that that's the serendipity part i think we were just like here's a person who we believe in so much who has this really great story about her mother as a and her relationship with her mother who was a, a, a public school educator for 40 years in the philadelphia school system and uh and and we just want to do this with her because we think it's a great idea we feel passionate about it and really feel passionate about working with her and 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 then there you go. You have this sort of, you know, other show that could not be more different. I think there are some similarities, I would say, uh, in, in, in certain characters and, and camaraderie and this feeling of like kind of underdog, uh, uh, you, know, you can root for the underdog in both of the shows. So there's, there's a little bit of overlap, like a sliver of it in the Venn diagram, but like, um, yeah, for the most part, it, it scratches two very different itches in, in my brain. Um, but yeah, I think, I think now that we have these two very eclectic shows on the air that, that are both, you know, hits, I I think it's fair to say, uh, yeah, like, I think it's kind of like we can, we can sort of, uh, at least get meetings, at least pitch kind of anything at at this point. I also think too, like they're very different shows, but if you kind of drill down on them, they are... anything we do, we kind of start from this place of like, what is the, like, they both have to do with like self-discovery, figuring out your identity. Mm-hmm. What is your place in the world? Um, that's Janine is constantly trying to figure that out. How do I do good in this world? What does success even look like? And Harley's trying to figure out where do I fit in this world? I've only ever existed uh, in so much as this guy's girlfriend and how do I figure out who I am and what who, and how I exist. And and we always operate off of those off of off of whatever the character's question is, right? Like what's the what's their journey? What's the thing that they want? Um and so they are very different shows but but we approach them in a similar fashion. What are some things you guys wanted to do with Harley Quinn? So if you compare DC and Marvel, Marvel's very linear. It's almost all interweaved where DC seems to have more freedom of like giving a creative their own spin. What what did you guys want to do with the show? Man, we did everything we wanted to do with that show. <laughs> like, is there any, I mean, 
bless DC's heart. Um, they really were, and Warner Brothers, they really were like, hey, go and make the, the show that you want to make. Um, and, and you don't get that in a lot of places. I've never worked for Marvel. He's never worked for Marvel. So I have no idea what it's like over there. But I will say for DC, like the fact that Harley exists is a testament to that company saying, make what you want to make. I don't, did we leave anything on the table? Is there anything you want to do, Pat, we didn't get to do? No, not at all. I mean, but I think like going into it, what we wanted to accomplish was um, at least conceptually, we were like, we really want to do like kind of a, a workplace comedy. We always, we always pitched it as um, it's Mary Tyler Moore. If she were a, a murderous psychopath, um, it, it, we always pitched it as it's an ensemble comedy. It's a bit of a workplace comedy because she's amassing this crew of, you know, colleagues and coworkers. Um, we always pitched it as like, kind of a, also a, a focusing on a, this two-hander of Harley and Ivy, the first season being this like kind of breakup story, but in, you know, aggrandized because it's in this world of supervillains. So we wanted to tell a breakup story to begin with, always like knowing in the back of our heads that we had this kind of incredible opportunity to get Harley and Ivy together, which is really what the show has become. But I like, I think in the, the sort of easy sell at the beginning was this idea of Mary Tyler Moore as a psychopath. Um, um, and the studio got really jazzed about that. Um, and then season two became this, this, this sort of deviation into um, Harley and Ivy's romance. Um, and, then, and then that just kind of be, became the, the focus of the show, I think. Um, so yeah, that was kind of like what we set out to do. And I, I do think that we, we, we accomplished that with some success and uh, yeah. But then, yeah, like Justin said, like once the show tested, cause we got some like pushback at first, like, are we being too irreverent about um, this intellectual property? Which is such um, a funny like note. Have you ever heard an audience member be like, this is too irreverent. I don't <laughs> want any part of it. I mean, you'll definitely get like the, like the occasional detractor on social media, but that's to be expected. But like, yeah, we tested them, the, the animatics for a couple of the episodes, specifically one that like really was hard on Commissioner Gordon's character, you know, who's always been this kind of like bastion of like strength and, and, you know, uh, you know piety. And, you know, he's a, he's a good cop. And, uh, but we made him this like, you know, inveterate alcoholic who's just kind of a, not a smart man. <laughs> and, uh, we were like, uh, uh, DC definitely was like, oh man, like, I don't know. And we were like, just bear with us. Like, can you, can you let us, can we test it? Can we test it? Cause we're going to test this in front of audiences who are sort of self described super fans of, you know, the canon. And we tested it and they loved it. And then, and then everybody was like, know, everybody breathed a sigh of relief. And then, yeah, they like never gave us a note. It was it was really something, and I think we also benefited from the uh, the network that we were on to begin with was DC Universe, which was this very kind of niche, you know, very specific streaming service that only uh, you know had DC Universe specific shows on it, and they didn't have this like infrastructure that you normally have at like a you know streaming service or a broadcast network where you have like the 
broadcast standards and practices department and there's like a legal team going over everything they were just you know they we had one executive and you know provided we were respecting the the ip enough to his liking like we got away with like everything so it was a little bit of like the wild west and then uh and i think that that helped the show really stand out right like it wasn't homogenized it was it was a big swing and it, it could have been an abject failure, but, you know, we made contact and, and then, uh, you know, when DC universe um, kind of dissolved or became like a comics only streaming service, HBO max had already started airing the, the second window of seasons one and two. And then they got excited because it did really well for them. And then HBO max uh, uh, became its new home. And Billy, we and his team, Billy was running adult animation over there. He was like, don't, I'm not going to, tell you a single thing like just keep doing what you're doing uh it's great and and and, and uh yeah it was it was a, a real gift so these are very different shows very different situations to pitch the show but do you have any advice on pitching what do you show up with or any misconceptions people have about pitching an idea like these yeah i mean the thing that's always worked for us is like <clears throat> you have to find a like personal access point for the show right like when you're coming in to pitch something and you're just it, it's hard to just come in and be like okay so there's a guy and he's sitting in a you know bodega it's like people want to know like why do you like the show right because if you don't like the show then why should they fucking like the show so i think for us the thing that's always been successful is to talk is to start off our pitches talking about like what we love about a certain theme or idea and then how that kind of we sort of uh, have that lead us into what our actual idea and pitch is. Like, what is this, what is this large theme or idea that we want to explore? And then how are we going to start to explore? And then we start to get into the characters and the show and things like that. <clears throat> Cause I think that there's a misconception that like, you just go in there and you start talking about your show. And I think that there, I'm sure there are people who can do that successfully but for us, it's always been easier to kind of like talk about what it, what is interesting to us about this idea that we want to explore and then leading us yeah. to the show. Yeah. I think anytime you can like right off the bat show your passion for the subject matter, be it through a, a personal anecdote, of this kind of happened to me, like with Abbott, that pitch started with Quinta talking about um, this very specific and and, and very um, kind of emotionally charged scene with her visiting her mother on a parent teacher night and kind of demonstrating, uh, you know, her mother's willingness to kind of go above and beyond when she had to stay, you know, till like 10 o'clock at night to just waiting for the last working parent to, you know, get off of the shift and how that, you know, was, was really meaningful to her. And then with like Harley, we, we really talked about how that character has such a, a cultural impact and an impact on us and what we, well, we talked about breakups. So you remember we started that pitch, we started that pitch talking about how we had all, everyone has been in a terrible relationship where mm -hmm. you start to like lose your sense of self because you're with this in this toxic relationship. And then the moment you finally break free from that relationship and you're kind of like out of the fog, you're like, wait, what the fuck am I going to do with my life? And that was kind of, we sort of talked about an anecdote that happened to one of us about that. And then we led into like, that's this character, this character has been in this relationship 
that's so toxic for so long. And so that, that was even with, even with Harley, a show like that, we still started it out with like, Hey, here's this like idea that is accessible for everyone who's listening to it. Thanks so much for tuning into the show. Before you take off, I want to give you a free gift. I'm giving you my first book, Ink by the Barrel, for free. That's the digital download and audiobook at brockswinson.com. Inside this book, you'll learn how to annihilate writer's block by embracing Elizabeth Gilbert's playful trickster mentality. You can learn to weaponize your anxiety with Kevin Kelly's different is better approach. And learn how to defend your time with Ryan Holiday's calendar anorexia mindset. There's just a few other ideas in the book, Ink by the Barrel. It's also based on over 400 interviews I've done right here on Creative Principles. So go steal that book right now, Ink by the Barrel, to learn how to be a prolific writer. You can get your copy that's digital download and audiobook at brockswinson.com, B-R-O-C-K-S-W-I-N-S-O-N.com. And if it's your first time here, thanks for listening. We'll see you next time. Make sure to hit that subscribe button so you never miss an episode.